So last week we wrapped up the systematic study on the Holy Spirit, and today we're going to be looking at um, the church's understanding of the Holy Spirit um, from the time of the apostles, the early church, to um, to the modern era in which we find ourselves. Um, I'm, I've got a couple of things. There is so much. If you're not following along in the systematic theology book or the historical theology book, I would highly recommend you get it. This is one of those lessons where there is a lot that we're just not going to be able to cover historically in the time frame that we have. I'm going to do a lot of reading this morning just for the sake of like being concise. I feel like uh, the the author of the historic his historical theology book here has done an excellent job in putting this information together, um, and and that's why I say like um, we're going to be covering quite a bit today. Um, I'm going to kind of read off just some of the the ideas that we're going to cover out of each of the major sections. So first, we're just going to look at a statement of belief. This is a general statement of belief um, that is kind of where we are today, um, as well as like our um, alignment with uh, particular eras of, of church history there. We're going to look in the in when we look at the early church, the, the era of the early church, we're going to look at two heresies that came up and actually were pretty widely held during the, the time of the early church. Um, one of those we've covered in, in some regard in a, in a prior class when we were uh, speaking about um, the Trinity and we're going to kind of cover it specifically here for the Holy Spirit today. Um, in the Middle Ages, we're going to actually see that um, a, a particular phrase added to the Nicene Creed um, and the controversies surrounding it are the reason that um, we have Catholic and then like Eastern Orthodox um, kind of break off um, regarding the events that kind of take place here. So we're going we're gonna to look at that a little bit. Um, and then we're going to look during the Reformation um, at how the Reformers kind of um, developed or focused on, in some regards, the Holy Spirit's work in illuminating Scripture to our hearts. And then we're going to look at the modern era. And this is one of those, this is an interesting... Um, like as we look at church history and as we look at like things that unfold in church history, one of the questions from like years ago when we actually first started this prior to all the COVID stuff, one of the reasons that I said I wanted us to look at history is because there's going to be times in history where things are late developing. Things come out like a hundred or so years ago, right? And what I want us to ask ourselves then is why is it that a whole bunch of church history missed out on these ideas and then we just come to understand them um, in, in recent history, right? And when we see those things, we should be, um, in a sense, like on guard to those ideas. So this is, an, this is one of those interesting areas. So like Pen Pentecostalism, charismatic movement, um, something called the, the third wave. Um, this all occurs within the modern era. This all occurs within the 1900s to, to, to today, right? So like this, this entire movement kind of... Um, springs up um, fairly recently in church history. So we'll, we'll cover that. Um, hopefully we have sufficient time to, to cover it in, in good detail there. Um, so with that being said, I'm, again, I, I hate 
one of the one of the things about the historic stuff is is oftentimes it just requires me to to read a <laughs> read a lot. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna read kind of the statement of belief um, out of the historical theology book here. So um, the church has historically believed that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, fully God and co-equal with God the Father and the Son. When the deity of the Spirit was denied, the early church marshaled biblical and theological support along with appeals to the church worship of the Spirit and its baptism in the name of the Spirit in support of his deity. The church has also has also historically embraced the multifaceted ministry of the Holy Spirit, including his conviction of sin and his work of regeneration in the lives of unbelievers. And in the lives of believers... His sealing ministry, distribution of spiritual gifts, empowerment for service, work of sanctification, illumination of the scripture, personal guidance, and much more. So relatively little disagreement has existed among Christians about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Some points of debate include the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Father and Son. This is where the the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church uh, split here. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church and Protestant churches are set apart from the Orthodox churches in their belief that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Orthodox theology holds... that the Spirit proceeds from the Father only. Further disagreement exists over the relationship of the Holy Spirit and the sacraments or ordinances of Christianity. Some churches, for example, the Roman Catholic Church, link the Spirit's work directly and exclusively to the sacraments. That is, the Holy Spirit does not work outside of those channels of grace. That's how they would hold that. Um, Other churches, while administering the baptism and the Lord's Supper, do not limit the Spirit's work to those and other formal church activities. Additionally, since the beginning of the Pentecostal movement, disagreement is found uh, as to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the so-called sign gifts, the Spirit of um, prophecy and miracles, and the role of Spirit of speaking in tongues as evidence of the Holy Spirit's work and believers' lives. Evangelicals hold to the historical belief that the Holy Spirit's deity and ministry, including the position that the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son, uh, but they reflect, reflect a significant amount of disagreement on the Spirit's link to the sacraments and his role in the, in the Spirit baptism and distribution of miraculous gifts. Okay, so to kind of summarize that, there is wide, widely held consensus on um, the through the Roman Catholic Church, through uh, the the Protestant Church, even the Orthodox Church, um, commonalities in the the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, there were, however, um, in the early days of the church, significant disagreements. Um, and some of those disagreements were widely held disagreements, okay? And that's what we're going to kind of focus our time on today um, is historically, in, so in the early days of the church, as the church is working out its doctrines and kind of formalizing them and they are settling out, um, there are areas in which 
certain teachers would teach particular ideas and other teachers would teach different ideas and there would be um, conflicting ideas that came along and out of that certain ideas over the course of time have been deemed heretical um, because they've been deemed not to line up with Scripture itself and to be extra biblical. And I want us to look. There's two that came up during um, the early church. Um, one is dynamic monarch, monarchianism, and then the other is called modalistic monarchianism. Um, we have talked about the modalistic monarchianism previously. We just called it modalism, and we'll kind of do a refresher for um, what this idea is. The uh, the modalistic view was was the one that was probably more wide. Not it wasn't the most widely held view in the in the days of the early church. But as far as heresies goes, it was one of the more widespread heresies that was believed to be true. I want to lay out for you um, what modalism is, and then we'll kind of read a, a bit about how it had influence within the early church um, and and. I would say that like when when we talk about what modalism is, what I would like for you to do is I want you to th- so thinking about the Trinity period is difficult, am I right? Okay? So when we do what we tend to do is we stick close to what the scripture says and build our understanding off of the scripture itself, right? Now, from this we get creeds and I'll read for you like the Nicene Creed which is it's going to come into place um here here in a bit when we get to the controversies in the in the Middle Ages, but I want to go ahead and, and read it for us so that we have it kind of in our mind. So so as the church is forming its its formal understanding of of what Scripture says about God and the work that God is doing, um, oftentimes the church will um, develop these creeds. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right? The pre-Paulian creed, where the church, even in the early days, like we're talking years after the resurrection, have already developed these like mental tools to help them understand what the Bible says about who Christ is. Um, they, we, we, we find that throughout history, the church is only kind of doubled down on these ideas of like developing creeds for 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 giving us kind of ammunition for understanding uh the work of the the work that what well, exactly what scriptures is saying to us the nicene creed being one of those so i'm going to read the nicene creed to you in its in its entirety here um and then um we'll talk about we'll talk about modalism um specifically in the early church and how it was kind of um, it was a it was a big deal then, and I would say I've heard I've heard um, oftentimes people who have not developed their understanding of the Trinity, even in like our church, when they try to describe um, the nature of the Trinity. Um, I've heard on more than one occasion people put forward modalistic ideas, so that's why I want us to like um, look at 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 what that is trying to to get at and why it's not true. So here's the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages. 
God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, and he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. I want to kind of pause right there for a second because um, the Nicene Creed did not always have this phrase, He proceeds from the Father and the Son. So it had the phrase, He proceeds from the Father, but later, the, later clarity being added to the Nicene Creed, that phrase was put in, um, and the Son, and there's some, there's some um, controversy that arises in the way that this occurred, and there's a split um, in in church history that, that kind of results from this. Um, and he spoke through the prophets. Um, this is a, kind of just picking back up there. Uh, he spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to uh, life in the world to, to come. Amen. Okay, so that's Nicene Creed there. Um, again, church working to try to flesh out formally, flesh out the ideas that are that are being proclaimed th- through the Word of God. Um, and as this occurs, oftentimes it will occur because some type of misunderstanding arises. And then they're like, listen, they're preaching this over here, and this is not true from Scripture. We need to kind of come together and, and grapple with this so that we have an understanding like a consensus as a body of what the scripture's saying and then oftentimes like these um these kind of uh creeds will 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 come out of that type of thing um modalism is one of those ideas that kind of came up became widely popular um and as a result um the church had to respond to what was being put forward here. So before we, I'm, and I'm going to at some point just kind of read what he's got here, but I want us to get an understanding of what um, what modalism is. And um, it it can kind of be said like like this. Someone who would hold to modalism would say that at some points in history, we see God in the form of the Spirit. At other points in history, we see God in the form of the Son, or in the mode of the Son. At other points in history, we see God in the mode of, or the form of, the Father, right? That it's one God manifesting Himself in different ways at different times, right? This is not what Scripture puts forward, right? So, so if we think about one God one person at any moment in time, but able to switch between modes in a sense, then we're talking about modalism here. And this was, again, widely held in the early church, right? This came to be known as a heresy um, after, after you know, much discussion about it, much, um, much fleshing it out. Um, so 
I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read what he has here. He, he has a, a, a good kind of piece here. So this is the second heresy, the, the other one being the, the dynamic monarchianism, uh, this one being much more widespread. So it became widespread belief in the early church. It was founded by Praxius in Rome, carried on by notice of Smyrna and his followers, and I can't read their names, I apologize, <laughs> they were both bishops of Rome, popularized by another guy that I can't read his name. Um, I hope that in history that our names are much easier to read <laughs> than these people's names. Um, Lord, forgive me that I don't know who these folks are. Um, they, de- they described his views, alleging that the Logos, the Logos himself is son and is himself father, although called by a different title, in reality is one indivisible spirit. He maintains that the father is not one person while the son is another, but that they are one and the same, and that all things are full of the divine spirit. And he affirms that the spirit which became incarnate in the virgin is not different from the father, but is one and the same. Modalistic monarchianism uh, held that there is one God who can be designated by three different names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, at different times, but these three are not distinct persons. Instead, they are different modes of the one God. Thus, God can be called Father as the creator of the world and lawgiver. He can be called Son as God incarnate in Jesus Christ, and He can be called the Holy Spirit as God in the church age. According to modalistic monarchianism, Jesus Christ is God and the Spirit is God, but they are not distinct persons. All right. So the early church rejected modalism, affirming instead that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. Speaking of the Spirit, and I'm going to. This is going to. He's quoting Tertullian here. Um, Tertullian explained, and this is a quote from Tertullian. Um, there is the Paraclete or Comforter for whom the Lord promised to pray to the Father and to send from heaven after He had ascended to the Father. He is called another Comforter, indeed. And he quotes um, John fourteen sixteen. Uh, he shall receive of mine, says Christ, and then John fourteen or sixteen fourteen. Just as Christ Himself received of the Father's. Thus, the connection of the Father in the Son and of the Son in the paraclete produces three coherent persons who are not who are yet distinct one from another these three are one essence not one person okay and again as we kind of uh, this is this is not easy discussion so i want to be i want to be kind in there like getting it wrong i don't think that when they did they did it intentionally i think they did because um God in this sense is um, unique. There is not a comparison that can be made to him. And we work very often off of comparisons. Have you ever heard uh, someone give an analogy for what, for like how to think about the Trinity? And they will use like an egg, right? And then it's like the outer shell for one, the yolk and the, you know, like, and that, that, no, right? Like there's no analogy that works. And when we approach, and here's the here's what's crazy when when you use an analogy 
to describe God, you are likely approaching a historical heresy that has been addressed by the church. Like most of the analogies that I've ever heard put forward to explain who God is tend to borderline on some heretical belief. So instead of analogies, the better approach is just read the Bible, right? Like read scripture. What does it say about the spirit? Well, we believe that. What does it say about the son? We believe that. What does it say about the father? We believe that. Like believe what the scripture says. Um, and it, and so again, like this is something that has, that has arisen. So, um, Tertullian's wording became the foundation for the church's definition of the Trinity, um, that God is one in essence and three in person. So if you have ever heard that phrase, and you probably have, I've heard Dustin say that, um, whenever, whenever I go about trying to like describe to someone like what is this Trinitarian God, that is the approach that, that I will take as well. Uh, so I'm going to read it again so that you kind of have it. When we believe who God is in, in the Trinity, in the Godhead, we say that God is one in essence, yet three in persons um, and again I like it, when we were in the the discussion specifically about the Trinity like I made I made note of, of this as well again like with the analogies that we tend to use like using like letting scripture stand on its own and not trying to make it more simple than it is because it's not that there is one and only one example of this being that exists right God is unique in this regard because I can't give you another example of someone who is one in essence and three in person, right? There's like, I'm one in essence, one in person, right? Everyone that you know is, is essentially the same. One in essence, one in person. Right? So we don't have, we don't have a, an analogy to draw from in creation that can help us to understand this so we shouldn't reach for one, right? Uh, because when we reach for one, um, we will we will tend to end up um, closer to heresy than than we are to truth in that regard. So, um, so that was one particular heresy that came up in the early church that um, that was. Um, had to be dealt with by the by the believers at that time had to be debated had to be um, better understood from the word itself another one that uh, that arose during that time is one called Arianism so not long after the council of Nicaea um, was completed a debate about the Holy Spirit broke out on the one hand those who sympathize with um, Arianism considered the spirit to be a created being. For example, Asubius of uh, Caesarea, citing John 1.3, affirmed that the Holy Spirit is uh, one of the things which have come into existence through the Son. So um, this, this heresy of the Holy Spirit being a created being, okay, he, the Holy Spirit is uncreated, Right? co-eternal with the Father and the Son. Um, but there was this, so we, we say that he proceeds from, right? He proceeds from um, is the phrasing that we, that we will use. But during during the early church, this, this idea that the Holy Spirit was created by God um, came about. So um, 
There were champions of the traditional view of the Holy Spirit, and they convincingly argued that position. Cyril of Jerusalem explained that the, that the only begotten Son, together with the Holy Spirit, is a partaker of the Father's Godhead. He attributed deity to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a power most mighty, a divine and unsearchable being. Moreover, the Spirit is a person, not a powerful force. Against the Arian view, Cyril argued that uh, the awesome uh, that the awesome Spirit can never be considered a created being. Nothing among created things is equal in honor to Him. For the families of the angels and all their hosts assembled together have no equity with the Holy Spirit. The all-excellent power of the Comforter overshadows all of these. Indeed, the, indeed, the angels were sent to serve, but the Spirit searches even the depths, even the deep things of God. So, like Spirit sent to serve, Hebrews chapter one verse fourteen for a reference there, and then the Spirit searching the deep things of God, First Corinthians chapter two. Um, verses 10 and 11 for for reference to that so that's early church period um we're working on time we're the arianism a-r-i-a-n-i-s-m um so if if you're like we're about to get to another word that is um it's painful, painfully obvious that uh that, that i'm i'm lacking when it comes to pronunciation uh so there's a controversy that comes up in the Middle Ages regarding this phrase that we that we read um, from the Nicene Creed. I will read it again just for uh, the sake of, of it, it being fresh on our minds. So there's a section towards the end where it's speaking about the Holy Spirit, and it says, And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, and it says, He proceeds from the Father and the Son. So... Um, as after the Nicene Creed is, is established, it is later uh, edited. I'm going to read you again. I apologize. The, the history stuff tends to get heavy on the reading. Um, but I'm going to read to you um, from the time of um, the Middle Ages, kind of the, the meat of, of this controversy. And ultimately, the addition of this phrase... Um, this the thing that's interesting to me historically about this is is that I believe that it's more about who has authority than the actual phrase being added that is the controversy, right? So there are some, and and I'll just I'll just I'll read this, and then we'll kind of discuss it for. Uh, for some, the conflict between the two theologies, and this is regarding that additional phrase, um, was due to a misunderstanding in terms to others, that's the Eastern Church, from the perspective of the West, was committing unpardonable sin. At the heart of the matter was the question of authority. Now, this is not the authority of uh, Scripture. This is, the, this is the authority that the Catholic Church was claiming and being able uh, to do this. The Eastern Church was unwilling to acknowledge the, the supreme authority of the Roman Pope, and it dissented from the change to the original Nicene Creed. So this was, a, this was about a power move more than anything else, right? Indeed, it pointed out that the word filioque, and that's filioque, F-I-L-I-O-Q-U-E, that it had been inserted, that's, the, that's kind of the phrase that they used there, that it had been inserted into the creed at the council at which none of its representatives, that's the Church of the East, 
um, were present. Such a unilateral and authoritative decision was unacceptable to the East. This matter of church authority had been in another um, medieval emphasis. The identification of the saving and sanctifying work of the Spirit with the Roman Catholic Church. For centuries, the Church had linked reception of the Spirit with baptism and its accompanying rite of confirmation. This practice um, became even more pronounced in the Middle Ages. Indeed, it was through the Holy Spirit's work in its midst and in it alone that the Roman Catholic Church considered itself to be the sole source of salvation for the world. The sixth article of faith is the sanctification of the church by the Holy Spirit and by the sacraments of grace and by all those things in which the Christian church communicates, by which is understood that the church, with its sacraments and discipline, is through the Holy Spirit, sufficient for the salvation of every sinner, and that outside the church there is no salvation. In this way, the saving and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit was decisively linked to the Roman Catholic Church and especially to its sacraments. The church went on to claim further that through the infallibility granted by the Holy Spirit to the Pope, the church was led by the church that was led by him could not err in matters of faith. Okay, so like this, this like topic of the Holy Spirit, when it comes to like, you have, you have this church being, a, that is fully established in the time of the Middle Ages. And then you have these points along the way where there's these power moves that occur that are more like political, not like political, like, geopolitical like governments but political like church politics that occur um, to seize power uh, by the Roman Catholic Church and this causes um, one of the one, pre-reformation one of the biggest um, splits in the, the history of the church so I know the bell rang we've got two more things that I want us to look at um, and, and we'll kind of move through quickly. So during the, uh, during the Reformation, um, we, we agree that like the like Protestants, Reformers, that we would agree that um, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So we are in agreement with the Catholic Church in that regard and disagreement then with the Orthodox Church um, there. During the Reformation, um, one of the things that's most interesting to point out is there there was a renewed focus on the Holy Spirit's work in enlightening um, Scripture to us, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read just a, a, a quote here. Um, when the Holy Spirit gave new revelation of old unto the prophets and penmen of the Scriptures by immediate inspiration, He did therein and therewith communicate unto them an infallible evidence that they were from God. Now that's speaking specifically to the Holy Spirit inspiring Scripture, right? And then it speaks next about it illuminating it to us as we read it. So. Here it says, And when he illuminates our minds in the knowledge of what is revealed, he does therein himself bear witness unto and assure us of the truth which we do understand. So um, the the work of the Holy Spirit in enlightening um, our minds as we read the Word, there was, there was much discussion of it that came out through the Reformation, um, a, kind of a heavy focus that was put on it. If we fast forward just for the sake of time, into uh, the modern era, the time that, in which we find 
uh, ourselves, we find um, another interesting occurrence that comes about, um, and that is the Pentecostal movement, the charismatic movement. Um, so kind of in, in regards to that, here's just a little history lesson on the development of those, um, of those particular movements. So without a doubt, the most important development in regard to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the modern time originated at the beginning of the 20th century and eventually led to three movements, Pentecostalism, the Charismatic Movement, and Third Wave evangel- Evangelicism. It began when an itinerant evangelist, Charles Fox uh, Param, so I'm going to spell that last name in case you want to go look it up, so P-A-R-H-A-M, so Charles Fox Param, um, this is in 1901, so he became convinced that every instance of baptism in the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts was accompanied by speaking in tongues. In a revival in Topeka, Kansas, in 1901, Param taught that speaking in tongues was the initial evidence that one had been baptized in the Holy Spirit, an experience that should be normative for all Christians. That's what he would claim. Param came into contact with William J. Seymour, who was instrumental in the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles in 1906. From this event, new churches and new denominations called Pentecostal because of the similarity between their experience of the Holy Spirit and that of the Christians on the day of Pentecost, arose and multiplied through the world. These include the Assemblies of God, Church of God, Church of God, uh, Church of God in Christ, Pentecostal Holiness Church, International Church of the Four Square Gospel, and others. So, um, the the Pentecostal movement again um, is something that's that that occurred only within like. A little more than a hundred years of us, and that type, the the activities that are seen that are seen there, or at least the focus that is placed on um, the the Holy Spirit and the spiritual gifts, um, that is is something that's relatively new uh, to church to church history, and because of it, I think that we should. Um, anytime that we find something being late development in the history of the church, we should ask ourselves the question, um, what, what is the motivation that God has for this thing being new to us now? Um, since scripture has been here for, you know, from the beginning for the church to, to read and study. If, if something new um, comes onto the scene, we should always ask ourselves the question, what is the motivation behind that? Why would God allow such a thing to be unknown or, or relatively unknown for the majority of church history and then only be revealed um, more recently f- for us. Um, what benefit did, did God have working in history in such a way, right? Um, so that is the close of this. I ask, 